This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Dan from Shares and I'm joined by Laura from AJ Bell. Hi there. This week we're talking about who had it easier between baby boomers and millennials, what Marks and Spencer needs to do to bounce back, and we talked to a leading fund manager about the outlook for UK stocks. So Dan, first, what's been happening in markets this week? We've obviously had lots of world leaders and important people at Davos. Our invites got lost in the post, but has that had any impact on markets or not really? The key things that have been driving the markets this week has been sort of um, this coronavirus, if that's how you pronounce it. Yes. In China. And I have a particular interest in this because I go to Hong Kong at the end of the week. Yes. I hope you don't get ill. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded so sincere. <laughs> but they've so the market's been a bit worried about this because it's spread to the US and Japan. Um, I think if you looked back to the early noughties, the SARS virus had a really negative impact on the markets. And so I think at the moment, investors are sort of, they're definitely concerned, but there's not sort of panic. But that's sort of been bubbling away a bit. Um, In terms of stocks, there's a British meat producer called Cranswick. May not be a sort of a household name, but. Another thing they've had to deal with in Asia has been African swine fever. So China's I'm feeling pretty pumped about my holiday yeah, choice now. <laughs> so China's been doing this mass culling of pigs, um, and of course, they, so they're, they're still hungry to, to eat more um, pork. So they've been turning to the European markets to import the goods. So that obviously that's been pushing up the prices. So Cranswick, as a meat producer, has been seeing its selling prices go up quite a lot, and it's came out with a really good statement recently um, on that. On the retail sector, we've had Mike Coop um, announce he's going to stand down as the boss of Sainsbury's. This um, is the man famous for singing I'm in the money when yeah. he was caught on camera, right? Yeah. So he's, he's been there for about six years at the top. Um, he bought Argos. Um, he bought the Nectar loyalty scheme. Tried to merge with Asda. Didn't happen. And tried to do a joint venture with Neto in the UK. And that sort of, sort of fell apart as well. So he, he's got a sort of appetite for making deals. Um some have been quite good. Argos, I think, particularly has been a, has a pretty good buy for the business. Um, but I don't know. We'll see. The new new person stepping in, is he's already been there for a couple of years and he, his background is with Master Spencer and Boots. So um, I think what the, the, the company just needs to do is concentrate on getting the in-store experience right, um, getting its prices right so it's competitive against um, sort of extreme competition and sort of improve the digital experience. But I guess that's the sort of, <laughs> so that's essentially every retailer. Yeah, I was going to say that feels like quite a large task as well. <laughs> yeah. You've made that sound like it's a day one task. Yeah. But. No, I mean, that's, that's kind of what they're, they're working on at the moment. That's a sort of the plan B after, because um, originally plan A was to merge with Asda and then because Asda was doing a lot better um, and that would bring some growth. But there is, there's very little growth in the in sort of the food grocery market now. So um, we had Dixon's come out, which some very interesting stuff saying that they're, they're sort of trying to turn that business around. Everything apart from their mobile stuff is doing quite well. But later, in the, you know, they originally said, oh, the, the group sales were up 2%. Later that afternoon, they went, um, sorry, you know, we said 
2%. Um, someone actually forgot to put the minus figure on it. It's actually minus 2%. <gasps> That's pretty embarrassing. Yeah, so really embarrassing. I mean, that is just, you know, you can blame it on the spreadsheet, but it, it's, you know, these things should That's not be. That's got to go through so many layers of people as well. Yeah. So, um, so huge red faces there. We had Fever Tree come out with UK growth, not so good. Um, they say they're going to spend a bit more money on trying to get the US expansion right. Um, fortunately, the stock market did not like that. Shares plummeted to a three-year low. Um, and, you know, overall, I think you know, it, it's it, disappointment, I think, because this has been a sort of a really big growth story. Um, the UK, it's, it, it's number one. I don't think it's hard to keep growing. Um, there's lots of competition now. Um, the US is massive. The, the opportunity is 10 times the size of the UK, but it, it will take time to do it. But at, you know, at the moment, they're having this sort of transition period. Um, and I think for what was a stock market darling is now turning into a bit of a, a, bit of a sour taste. Oh. Yeah, I'm sure you could insert a joke there about sort of sour taste yeah, of products, of fun, but... mixes and stuff. But you... Answers on a postcard, please, yeah. for jokes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just one more quick fact. It's not to do with the markets, but um, there are some figures talking about how there's now 5 million people who are self-employed. Um, but the personal pension savings amongst the self-employed have fallen incredibly fallen. So in 2002, there were 1.2 million pension pots for self-employed people. There's now only 400,000. It's a bit oh, worrying. That is worrying. It's sort of, I know people are talking about the gig economy and people aren't, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're living in, or working in jobs where perhaps there's, um, you know, not sure where the next bit of work's coming from and stuff, but you, know, you do still need to think about your sort of later in life and putting money aside but and it's something uh, the government i think is trying to tackle in various ways is to get those people engaged with pensions and, and offer incentives and make it easier for them because obviously when you've got an employer they now have to set up a pension scheme they enroll you in it and it's all fairly painless yeah but clearly those figures would suggest the government is not doing enough so well Let's hope they're listening. Yes, I'm sure they are. <laughs> so we asked you guys which fund managers you wanted to hear from, and we have been beavering away, setting up meetings with all of them. And so one request was Laura Foll, who works at Janice Henderson, running a number of different funds. So we recorded a chat with her earlier this week. Here it is. Okay, so we're here with Laura Foll, co-fund manager on various funds from Janice Henderson, including Lowland Investment Company. So, Laura, we've been looking at... Uh, UK equity funds recently, and they've all had a bit of a bounce since the general election result in December. Um, do you think we've had the best of this rally or is there more to go? Ooh, the key question. Yeah. We don't think of things on a, a six month, one year view. I think the best way to think about it is where are we starting from? And when I look at valuations, you know, even now in the UK, even after this very strong calendar year 2019, the valuation, and I'm talking for the market here, but you could look at our portfolios as well. The PE on the market and the dividend yield on the UK market still, to me, looks pretty attractive. So, for example, for the FTSE All Share, you can still get an over 4% dividend yield. And in the current world where you know it's, it's pretty difficult out there to get income, I think that level still looks really quite attractive. You know, If you're in a person that wants income, you're not getting much from your bank account, and yet the FTSE All Share is paying you 4%. So I think that's a decent place to start. Um, so while you, know, you look at 2019 and think, ooh, you know, the market's moved quite a long way. I think valuations are what matters in terms of your starting point, and that still looks reasonable to me. 
And small and mid-sized companies have gone up more than large cap. So why do you think that particularly is? It really depends how you measure. So mid-cap, as measured by the FTSE 250, had a very strong year last year. That was up almost 30%. Actually, small cap didn't have a very good year um, on a relative basis. It did on an absolute basis. So AIM, FTSE All Share AIM, was up around 13%. So it underperformed the mid-cap by about 16%, which is a huge number and very unusual. And there are, you know, there's a variety of reasons for that. Small cap or you know, real micro-cap stocks are on average more cyclical. And there were question marks about the global economy last year. So I think that played a part. And then there's also this desire for liquidity, particularly among open-ended funds that really accelerated last year in the UK. And I think that's part of the reason that small cap underperformed as well. What, because they sold out of the kind of much more illiquid smaller stocks and into bigger stocks? Exactly. So there was a dislocation that was happening last year where managers that run you know, small cap funds or multi-cap funds were effectively trying to increase the liquidity of their funds you know, for various reasons. And that caused effectively a period of, of share register dislocation where these very small illiquid stocks were being sold by fund managers that run open-ended funds and being picked up by, for example, fund managers that run investment trusts. And that caused this period where small cap underperformed, which is quite unusual historically. Um, but that doesn't mean you know this, this period of dislocation will sort itself out. It's just a temporary phenomenon. So in the UK, the economy's not exactly um, doing great. I'm wondering if people might have looked at the rally since the general election in, in UK stocks and think, OK, it's all looking pretty good now. And actually, if the economy's not doing great, could we still get some shocks? And, and perhaps we're still going to be in a territory of sort of multiple profit warnings for companies or impossible to tell? I think there's a real question mark about how the UK economy is doing at the moment. And there's a real... Um, opinion is very divided about it. So, for example, the November GDP data did, you're right, it looked very poor. But there has been some softer data recently, for example, PMI data. Um, so this is survey data, effectively. Um, not only PMI data, but also surveys of CFOs and house price inflation that actually looks like it's accelerating since the election. And I'm aware that this is a very short time period we're talking about now. But it does seem like since the election, there has been this pickup in activity. And it's a, there's a question about whether that is sustained and obviously I'm, I don't know what the Bank of England are going to do at the end of the month but there is this real question mark about whether the UK is accelerating or stagnating. We slightly fall on the side that it is accelerating although it is very early days and when I look at consensus expectations for this year in terms of economic growth to me they look quite low. They, they basically assume that we grow at the same pace as last year which as you pointed out, was not a particularly high rate of growth, although better than some countries in the Eurozone. Um, so I think expectations are relatively low, but we could be seeing that the very early signs of a pickup in activity. So you kind of touched on the fact that opinions divided in the UK market, and a lot of that must come down to how people feel Brexit will pan out. Um, I'm obviously not going to ask you for your opinion on <laughs> how it will do, but has it influenced any of your choice of stocks in terms of either the ones that you've chosen to buy or sell or just the allocations that you've had to different stocks? So we're very bottom up in how we run the funds. So since the referendum back in 2016, we saw that there was a real valuation opportunity in domestic UK companies you know, with our valuation screens. That was we were being pointed towards domestic UK. And by that, I mean the likes of house builders, you know, selective retailers, things like Dunelm. We've added to Lord Venture, for example. 
that was where we were being pointed. And to be honest, we are value driven. And that's where we invested, not because we have any particular view of how Brexit was going to pan out, but because that was where we were thinking, well, that's the best value, that's the best income on offer. And so that was where we ended up being invested. Where we are now, particularly from the fourth quarter of 2019 onwards, those domestic stocks have broadly, you know, with some exceptions, done well. Um, so that re-rating has partly happened, but domestic UK is still at a discount to the broader market when historically it hasn't been. So I still think there is an opportunity there, albeit not of the same scale as it was, let's say, this time last year. But quite a lot of your stocks in your portfolios are London listed, but actually they do business overseas. So you've got things like Plexo, Smith, Klein in there. Um, it, it, do, you, do you look at geographies when you're trying to find investments? You're thinking actually, whilst there may be an opportunity in the UK, it's better still to have some geographical diversification. We would definitely want geographical diversification, but that wouldn't be what would drive the un underlying stock decision. So, for example, for Lowland, just drilling down into where the sales are, we would be roughly 50% domestic and 50% international in terms of where the sales lie. That would be very different to the market as a whole, which would be only about 25% domestic. So the UK market is very international in terms of its exposure. And we're much more domestic. Partly, that is a structural position, because if you're going to invest in small and medium-sized companies, they do tend to start with their home market, and therefore they're more domestic in terms of the exposure. But that 50% would be higher than it was historically, a bit higher. And that's, again, because that was where the valuation was pointing us towards those domestic companies. And I don't worry too much, you know, 50% 50 sounds like a very high number. I don't worry about that too much. You know, all those companies are doing very different things. So they're very diverse. Yeah, well, so, so Lowlands, um, the performance has, has lagged the market for a bit. I mean, do you think, because you say you, you're, the structure of your portfolio is a bit different, do you, do you think that there will come a time when you're actually going to be outperforming? Well, I guess that's every fund manager's <laughs> hope, isn't it? So, well, of course yeah. that. Do you think? So you're right, of course, it's the desire to outperform. And we think about things for Lowland and for actually for all the trust that we manage on a five-year-plus time horizon, really. So that's, that's the horizon that we're looking at. Lowland, its financial year end is September. And you're right, we, we underperformed in the 2019 financial year. So far in the FY20, so the current financial year that we're in, so starting from the beginning of October, we've outperformed um, quite a way, partly because we are more domestic in terms of our exposure. And since, so Sterling, if you think back to August 2019, it troughed in August. And that was when people were very worried about, um, you know, hard Brexit possibly leaving without a deal at the end of October. And from then on, it seemed that actually Boris did, did in reality want a deal, then went and got his deal. Then we had the general election. So Sterling did well from August onwards. And that helped the portfolio because we do have this domestic weighting. So I think what you need to see for Lowland to do well and what has been happening in the last few months is you need confidence to return to domestic UK because we do have this domestic weighting. You also need confidence in the global economy because we have this industrials weighting. We've got around a quarter of the whole portfolio in industrials. So for us to do well, you need to see you know, confidence in the UK, confidence in the global economy. And that does seem to be coming through in recent months, although obviously I can't guarantee that we'll, we'll continue to outperform. But so far this financial year and all our NAVs are publicly available. Um, so I'm hoping that that trend will continue.
You've also, in Lowland, you've also got um, a fair allocation to financials, um, and some of those haven't done quite so well since the general election and maybe weren't swept along in that in that post-election bounce. Um, why is that? You're completely right, and it's something that I've been slightly mystified by. So, for example, we've been we've held RBS for around a year now, and I've been we've been adding to it since the election. I was slightly confused, I still am confused, about why it hasn't responded better, because it does have a roughly 60% government stake still, and one of the um, question marks was if we had had a Corbyn government, a, a Labour government, that 60% stake would have meant that RBS was effectively run as a national champion uh, with state interference. Now, that won't be the case. You know, Since the election, we know that it will be left largely without interference, and I would hope that that government stake is gradually sold down. Um, now, of course, it is a bank and that comes with it. You know, if the Bank of England do cut rates at the end of this month, which it's looking increasingly likely that they will do, you know, it's harder for them to generate a return. So I think what's happened in reality since the general election is this this noise out of the Bank of England has you know, taken a lot of people, me included, by surprise. I did not expect them to be talking about cutting rates this soon. I thought they would wait quite a while longer to see what happened with the data uh, and actually that doesn't seem to be the case they seem to prefer a kind of you know do it now and see what happens type route which I wasn't expecting so I think that's why um, companies like RBS have been a bit weaker but from a longer term perspective uh, you know we have been adding and we think it looks you know decent value at this point but that's not to say it doesn't come with risks you know it definitely does. What else have you been sort of been catching your eye? Can you could you talk to us about some of the stocks that you've been buying recently? Yeah, so if you look down our recent purchases, one would include, for example, Morgan Advanced Materials, which is an industrial company which we've held for quite some time. It's got a reasonably new management team, you know, within the last few years. Actually, both of them are called Pete. So the CEO is called Pete and the CFO is also called Pete. <laughs> <laughs> but we meet them quite often and we think they're a good management team. Um, it's obviously it's been a very difficult backdrop for the industrial sector as a whole and um, what with industrial activity being quite weak in 2019 if you look at PMI data for example that's been quite weak and Morgan advanced in that environment their last set of results they were 0% organic growth so you might think well you know that's not very exciting why are you telling me about a company that did 0% organic growth but actually in in this type of backdrop we were we were encouraged by that so we've been adding to that position again you know as with rbs it definitely comes with risks it is an industrial company so it is cyclical and it will remain cyclical but i think on balance you know that one is at quite a big discount to the industrial sector at the moment so that's one we've been adding to another one which would possibly be well known because it's STV, so Scottish ITV. It plays all the same programmes as ITV, but in Scotland, and it takes an advertising revenue share from ITV, effectively. Fortunately, it doesn't have Love Island because that's on ITV2. It only has <laughs> ITV1. Because that's, that's been the big for me. for ITV, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but STV trades at quite a valuation discount to ITV, partly because it's, it is a lot smaller. It's So I think it's around £150 million market cap, so it does come with liquidity illiquidity discount effectively but it's got a, again similar to Morgan it's got a reasonably new management team who I think are doing some very sensible things there it pays a, a modest dividend yield as well which is helpful for Lowland so those are a few and you, you'll notice they're very different you know you've got one industrial very global industrial and one small cap domestic um, but I think both represent reasonably good value at this point. And what about the other side of it? So what have you been kind of selling off in order to make space for those new acquisitions? Sure. So among the biggest sales recently have been two long-held positions, um, one called Johnson Service Group, which does textile rental. 
which is we're just reducing it. We've not sold out. It's still a decent sized position. We've been reducing it in both Lowland and Lord Adventure as well. And it does textile rentals, so things like uh, workwear rental, hotel linen, sort of cleaning. And it's a very good company. It's been a good performer for the, over the long term. So we don't have any fundamental concerns about it, but it has performed really quite well and it's re-rated as a result of that so it's on a much higher earnings multiple than it would have been certainly when we purchased it and even compared to this time last year the valuation would be quite a bit higher so we think it's right to just do a bit of profit taking there and recycle it into some better value opportunities and the other one that's on, along a similar vein would be a company called Avon Rubber which does a mixture it's a slightly odd company it does a mixture of milking equipment and also gas masks for the US Department of Defence. That's quite a diverse <laughs> so, yeah. business line, so. Yeah, lots of synergies between those two businesses, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but it has bought a company called, uh, bought a company from 3M, which is a very large US company. Um, Avon does the masks, whereas 3M did the helmets and the body armour. So it fits together quite well, and people liked that that acquisition. And so the shares performed well as a result, but very similar to Johnson Service Group, we're just taking a little bit of profit there and recycling it elsewhere. It's not any fundamental concerns about the business. Brilliant. Thank you ever so much. It's really good. That's right. Thanks a lot. So I hope you find these fund manager interviews useful. Please do let us know who you'd like us to interview next. Uh, we've actually got Nick Train from Linzel Train lined up. And uh, if you'd like us to ask any particular questions, just drop us a line at podcast at ajbell.co.uk and we'll ask them on your behalf to him. Uh, but for now, let's turn to property. So the age old debate runs between baby boomers and millennials as to who had it harder getting a foot on the housing ladder. But Laura, you've been looking at the figures. What do they tell us yeah so it's this age-old thing where millennials say today that it's impossible to get on the housing market because property prices have soared dramatically um but then baby boomers quite rightly point out that when they first bought property prices were cheaper but interest rates were sky high um so not wanting to fuel that debate it's quite hard actually to come to a definitive answer but i've got lots of facts to help us so the average property price in 1980s what do you think it was across the uk Oh, um, I'm thinking £100,000? £21,000, just under. Yeah. Um, so, And then at the end of last year, it was £235,000. So if you look just purely at house price levels, clearly it's gone up, um, which means that it's pricier for people now to get their first step on the ladder. But it also means that people that bought in the 1980s, so this kind of baby boomer generation, have got loads and loads of property wealth built up in their houses. But that... Obviously, everything's risen over time. So um, inflation means that all prices rise over time and earnings have risen over time. So that doesn't really take into account the effect of, of earnings on that. So Nationwide have quite a handy ratio. So they look at first-time buyers and they look at how many years annual salary it would take you to buy a property. So back in the 1980s, it was just under three. So it would take you three years worth of your annual salary to be able to buy a property. Now it is just over five. So that takes into account rising earnings and highlights that um, perhaps for millennials now, it is harder to get on the property ladder than for baby boomers. Um, and unsurprisingly, there's obviously regional differences in that, but London, the affordability has got much worse on that kind of earnings to price of property ratio. I wonder if it's, do you think it's harder to get a mortgage as well these days that the the sort of the amount of deposit you need uh, I certainly remember when I was getting my first house you could get 
110% mortgages fairly easily. Um, I mean, it's what is it, 95% now? Is it still the standard, or is it uh, is it tighter? You need you need it's 90%, so you need a 10% deposit. I don't know what. So I tend to think of 10% as being fairly standard, but there's definitely lots of 95% mortgages out there, which means you only need to put down a 5% deposit. Um, so. While the property price is higher, which means your deposit amount is higher, whatever that percentage is, actually, I think quite a lot of people, first-time buyers, could just put down 5%, assuming that they have enough earnings to be able to borrow enough money on that mortgage. So the kind of general rule of thumb now is that you can borrow four times earnings, which if you're in a couple and you're buying as a couple, that might not be so much of an issue. But if you're buying on your own in some of the pricier areas, particularly in the southeast, that might make it look a little bit unattainable. But while we're talking about mortgages, obviously interest rates is a massive one. So um, base rate in the 80s peaked at 15%. Wow. Yes. Now, if you compare that to now, <laughs> it's three quarters of a percent and mortgage rates are at historic lows. So actually, if you can get the deposit and you can you have enough kind of salary to be able to get the mortgage, what you're paying for that mortgage is so low. And it means that what you're paying off each month, you're paying off so much more of the capital rather than back in the 80s, there's so much more of their money, their mortgage payments each month would have gone just to paying off that debt rather than actually paying down any capital. What else do the figures tell us then? So I think one of the big things is, while it probably is slightly less affordable to get on the property market, property ladder now, there's way more government help than there was before. So we've got things like the stamp duty break for the first time for first time buyers. So um, you don't pay any stamp duty on homes worth less than £300,000. So that saves you about £5,000 in, in tax. We've got things like the lifetime ISA, where the government will give you up to £1,000 of free money each year to go towards your deposit. And we've also got things like schemes like shared ownership, which weren't around in the 80s, um, which means that you can you effectively kind of buy a, a portion of a house and you rent the rest of it um, with the hope that you can then increase the amount you own over time. So you've got schemes like that that enable people that otherwise might not be able to get on the property market, property ladder to be able to do that. And we've got the help to buy scheme, which means you effectively get a government loan for some of your money um, and then you get a mortgage for some of it and you only put down a 5% deposit. So I guess for, for people who, who haven't got parents or grandparents who can help them out with the deposit, you know, th there is this sort of, there is a helping hand elsewhere, um, but it's still not an easy easy task really isn't it getting getting that money together to buy yeah i think it massively depends where you where in the country you're buying because you're right the the bank of mum and dad as it's become called um is now such a crucial element to lots of people buying their first home particularly in more expensive areas and that i think wasn't anywhere near so much of a thing back when baby boomers were buying um but actually if you're buying um in cheaper areas in the northeast in the northwest um if you're willing to buy outside of cities so that you commute in then actually there are quite a lot of affordable deals out there even in london there are areas where you can buy it just might not be the kind of really desirable areas where lots of your friends are renting or where you're renting currently you might have to look a little bit further out or in areas that you might not have come across quite so much or maybe don't have quite as good transport links so i think I think there's a lot of stuff out there that, that basically says it's impossible to buy a first home. Now you shouldn't even bother. But actually, I think you can put down 5% 5 5 deposit. You can use these government schemes. You can buy in maybe slightly less affluent or sought after areas. And, and I think it definitely is possible, particularly if you're in a couple. I think if you're... If you're buying, trying to buy on your own, particularly in the southeast, that is where it becomes a little bit tricky if you don't have any family help. 
Yeah, because I saw an article that, that took the London underground map and replaced all the stops with how much salary you'd need to be able to buy in these locations. Oh, yeah. Um, of course, you know, as you would expect, it's it's really the outskirts, which is when it perhaps becomes more affordable to sort of a large amount of people. And I was reading another article which was talking about where, where are the up and coming places in and around sort of London to buy for 2020. And, and again, it's the same thing. It's no surprises here. It's it's, it's really um, far out of the city centre. But I think, you know, if people should just you know, it, it, perhaps it's wrong for us to just talk about London when, of course, we've got listeners from across the country. But um, it, the idea that, you know, you just might have to accept I'm going to have to travel a bit to work. Yeah, or live in a less good area, because I think the, the dangers of those kind of averages in your example of like the tube map is if I think about the area that I live in, that average will hide so many differentiators so there'll be some areas where it'll be so much cheaper and, and we'll have the type of properties that will be much more affordable and then down the road a, a mile or so you'll have multi-million pound houses so I think if you just look at an average for an area it hides a lot of potential pockets of value and that's the case not just in London but all over the UK um, particularly when we're looking at, at cities if you buy in a slightly less well connected a little bit further from a train station maybe or that's on a bus route or in an area that's that isn't quite as nice doesn't have quite as good high street if you're willing to make those compromises then i think you don't even have to move out super far out of cities to be able to achieve that yeah okay trying to be positive yeah so now i noticed that you have been pouring over mns annual reports and accounts and diving through all of the details of marks and spencer's so what have you found out and also why are you looking at them so much well the team the journalist team I sort of head up on Shares Magazine. We, we we sort of decided to have a good close look at some of the sort of the, the big companies that you get on the stock market. And that includes some big names in the UK. So we thought we'd have a look at Marks and Spencer's because it, um, it's quite a lot of analysts who work for stockbrokers, investment banks, sort of getting excited about the business again. I mean, it's been in the doldrums for a long time. And I was quite curious to see what, what is it that's changed for them to get excited. I feel uh, like M&S is one of those companies that's like constantly on the cusp of a revival. It's constantly got a new plan to boost sales or to revive or to appeal to a younger market. And then kind of always feels to me anyway, as a spectator, that it falls slightly flat. And then they come up with a new plan. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, it's we had a look at the quarterly sales figures going back to sort of mid 2015. Every single quarter, apart from two, has been negative like for like sales. Oh, wow. um, but of those two quarters where it's been positive, the most recent quarter it produced is one of them. So it's, it was another reason to catch our eye. We thought, okay, so what? What's it done now? What's, what's going on here? So. It's the same story that the food business is absolutely brilliant. I think that they've totally cracked that. I mean, it, it, it's they know who their audience is and they've got the products that people want. The clothing bit is the troubled bit. Um, and I think if you saw the headlines over Christmas, they were saying it wasn't great because they stocked too many pairs of men's skinny jeans. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's. Can you ever have too many pairs of men's skinny jeans? I think the question is, should you ever have a pair of <laughs> men's skinny jeans? Um, to me, if I think of Marks and Spencer's, who is it that they're trying to appeal to? I wouldn't have thought um, any of their customers would want to wear skinny jeans. But isn't this the issue that actually yeah. the people that shop there are like 
my parents' generation, so people in their kind of mid-60s, but who Marks and Spencers is constantly trying to appeal to is people in my generation, so people in their mid-30s. And so then you end up with this weird mashup that doesn't appeal to either group. It's true. It is true. I, I sort of I wonder whether their target market is sort of the older person. Why don't they just concentrate on that and do it absolutely amazingly? Um, but no, they're trying to go after the, 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 sort of a, a broader, the, go after the family. You know, the, the mass market, I guess, is what they're trying to do. Um, there's been lots of criticisms that they sell frumpy clothes. <laughs> so they, you know, this, the, the argument is that middle-aged, um, even elderly women in particular like to dress more fashionably than they used to. Um, but Marks and Spencer just doesn't offer what they need. Um, it's still going for sort of actually really sort of boring stuff. Um, but then if they're trying to appeal to a broader market, you know, I guess you know, skinny jeans might be fashionable in a certain segment, but um, the problem that they have is they're not stocking, they're either stocking too much of it or the popular stuff, they're not stocking enough. So when people read about it or they go into stores expecting things, they just haven't got the range, the right sizes. So essentially their supply chain is quite poor. Um, they don't seem to have secured very good online stuff either. So uh, yeah, so they've got, st they got stock problems. So they're going, the latest thing, they're going for athleisure. So this is where people like dressing mm. up in sports stuff. Um, Which is where JD Sports, another big retailer, has made so much of its money. Yeah. So it, it, yes, you can see this. If you walk up the high street, you can see people of, of lots of different ages wearing this sort of stuff. I'm not talking about just wearing a tracksuit, but you know, it's a sort of more sporty things. And interesting, Marks & Spencer's already sells one in four sports bras in the UK anyway. That's interesting. Yeah. That's so, a great stat. So actually, they are already capturing mm. this market. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see. So, But they've been through four different clothing bosses for the company in a decade. So, they could so maybe what they actually need is just to pick a stat pick a plan stick with it and yeah. stick with the boss and then ride it out yeah i mean there's been some some criticism saying they're not each time they get someone new they sound pretty qualified but they're not giving them enough chance long enough to prove what they're trying to do but um so yeah i don't know so i think that they're still muddled with this clothing stuff i think they need to we, we sort of come to the conclusion and on the shares team that they, they need to make some bolder decisions um so they've made this with food so they're going they've, they're linking up with a cardo so soon you'll be able to buy your MS stuff online and have it delivered to you um across the country um and i think that might be quite an interesting one and then hopefully they should do quite well out of that um the clothing stuff i don't know um I'll, i'm gonna go in this weekend i'll do some uh sort of mystery shopping for the podcast <laughs> um and we'll see what they can come up with but um one of my colleagues has suggestion that they should buy clark's the shoe chain. I thought that was really interesting. Oh, that is quite interesting. Yeah. I guess that is their, like, demographic. Clark's is in trouble financially, but uh. the brand is really well known. Um, there's a sort of association with quality pair of shoes mm. that will hopefully last longer than six months. So I think you, know, you, you could see they could have Clark's concessions inside their stores. Because, you know, Marks and Spencer sell shoes now, but they're... I don't know. The reputation isn't. Um, you think okay. They're not known for their shoes. No, no. You don't think. I think I'm going to pair of work shoes. I'll go to M and S. I, I always think, okay. I'll go to Clark's or something like that first. So maybe there's an opportunity there, but I don't know. Maybe they they don't want to do 
an acquisition when they're trying to show that they're turning around the business. But and they've previously been quite resistant to having other brands in their shop. So it was only relatively recently, in I guess the past kind of five years or so, that they had other brands of food stuff in their shops. Otherwise, everything was own brand before, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, the, the Next has started to stock third-party clothing brands and is doing very well out of it. Um, but you could think of something like Debenhams. Well, their clothing departments used to stock lots of different brands, but didn't necessarily mean that that was um, a successful model given how they've struggled. But um, I don't know, Laura, how often do you go and buy stuff in M&S in terms of clothing I'm rather than I'm wearing jeans from M&S right now, yeah. but they were bought for me by my mother-in-law. Oh. <laughs> so <laughs> that probably tells you everything you need to know. Yeah. I don't know. I think I think of M&S as good for like staples, for basics. Their um, workout stuff, athleisure gear, is meant to be very good, but I haven't really bought anything from there. Is that because you've haven't been to the gym for a while. <laughs> what are you trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> the beauty of a podcast, no one can see that. <laughs> um, so I would say I own a few items from there, but it wouldn't anywhere near be like my first port of call apart from for tights. Best tights. Yeah. Well, the basics, isn't it? It is known for the basics and yeah. people. And I guess that, that, that keeps the tills um, ringing. And so maybe they should just over. focus on that. Stop trying to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Just I do really know. good basics. But I mean, the men's clothes, you go in there, if they're trying to be um, exciting and bold, I think the, the most exciting you might get is a, a polo shirt or a rugby top that says like cool guy or something like that on there. But it, it, it's <laughs> Next week, can you come in with that exact shirt on and some skinny jeans yeah. and we'll put some pictures on social media? Yeah, I'll, um, I'll buy as much Blue Harbour as I can find this weekend. <laughs> so, But yes, I think it's a... They, 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 they are behind the curve with digital stuff. Technology doesn't seem to be very good. Supply chains it is still rubbish. So, so this turnaround story, if they get it right, I mean, this is a business which is amazing brand, um, still ha attracts lots of people through its doors. So it, it could be it could be amazing turnaround story, but it's really hard to see anything radical happening in the near term. So I think it's it's a frustrating one, but I, I guess you'll. Know, give me stuff to write about for a long time <laughs> <laughs> and maybe they're listening and they'll take some tips and we'll suddenly see them acquire clerks and you'll be able to claim some sort of commission in that yeah, deal that'd be really good yeah free pair of shoes i'd be fine <laughs> wow you really aimed low there <laughs> So thanks a lot for listening this week. We'd love you to rate the podcast. So go to the AJ Bell website at uinvest.co.uk forward slash podcasts. And there are some shiny stars to click on. Um, you can also leave feedback on the same page and it helps us tailor what we cover in the podcast. So thanks again and we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.